Welcome to Intersections, a podcast dedicated to interfaith discussion on issues that matter to our communities and our world. I'm the Reverend Chris Moore. I serve at Fellowship Congregational United Church of Christ here in Tulsa, and also as board chair for Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. Thanks for listening. Evictions are skyrocketing in some areas of Oklahoma, part of a nationwide crisis in affordable housing. In several counties across the state, including Canadian and Oklahoma counties, evictions in the first half of 2022 were at an all-time high. And while census figures are making clear that government efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic protected unprecedented numbers of people from poverty in both 2020 and 2021, we are now moving into a new economic reality where jobs are available, but wages are still low, and the economy is doing well, but inflation is causing pain everywhere. According to numbers reported by the Tulsa World, the number of people living on the streets in Tulsa jumped 40% this year, reflecting a nationwide trend of homeless encampments spreading across major cities, according to an annual headcount of local homeless population. Overall, that was only a 2% increase in the homeless population, but the city's unsheltered population skyrocketed from 287 people in 2021 to 403 this year, likely due to the impact of COVID on everyone. And as I'm sure my guests will attest to, those numbers are probably an underreported number. The annual survey that produced some of this data reports the situations that push people towards homelessness are complicated, including things like relationship breakdowns, job losses, and mental health struggles. In addition, the findings report that 10% of homeless adults were accompanied by children. 67% had a disabling condition of some sort. 50% reported a history of domestic violence. 50% and 55% reported a history of incarceration. 22% were employed while being homeless. There is no easy button when it comes to contending with a complex compound that ties together economic opportunity, systemic discrimination, substance abuse, lack of affordable housing, mental health issues, a broken health care system, access to resources of all kinds, etc., etc., etc. For many congregations, this is an abstract issue. For many others, the unhoused are in their congregations or at their doors. And the question for all of us is the same. How can we effectively help? I'm joined today by two people very much on the front lines of this issue here in Tulsa. Becky Gligo is the Executive Director of Housing Solutions, the lead agency in a federally funded continuum of care that coordinates various efforts to provide shelter, housing, and services to the homeless. Also with us is Mac Haltom, Executive Director of the Day Center of Tulsa, an organization that was started by Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry many, many moons ago and now serves 300 clients a day with all kinds of services designed to help those dealing with housing issues. Thank you both for being here to discuss this critical issue. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you, Chris. We could likely begin from a thousand different directions (laughs) and make a deep connection to the problem of unhoused people in Tulsa, because as they say, it is the onion that has many layers to it. So let me start with a a ludicrously oversimplified question to each of you. 
What do you think is the single biggest complication to addressing homelessness in Tulsa right now? Housing. Yeah, <laughs> the housing. lack of affordable <laughs> housing. Yeah, the lack of affordable housing is, is the big. I, I was thinking that along with the number of people going into homelessness monthly compared to how we're trying to, to house people on the other end. That's pretty complicated, too, just mm-hmm. the evictions. But housing is, is the lack of affordable housing. So can we unpack that a little bit more? Mm-hmm. And so, so when you say lack of affordable housing, are you talking about um, there being homes, but there's restrictions placed on who can go in those homes? Are you talking about lack of uh, Section 8 available housing? Yeah. So we have right now in Tulsa County roughly a 97% occupancy rate against all income levels. So from luxury apartments down to affordable apartments, 97% of all rental opportunities in Tulsa are currently occupied. So there simply isn't a place for people to go. And it's a landlord's market, right? And so Mm -hmm. you can put up barriers and still have a line to get in where you need to be. Um, Everything you mentioned is a part of it, right? So we have people in tents right now in our community who have vouchers in hand who can't find a landlord. We have people being churned through the eviction system. We have a lack of just housing stock or I think more than anything, quality housing stock. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have people with barriers like being justice involved who can't find a landlord who's willing to work with them, which is a big barrier for the number one incarcerator of men and women in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it just runs the gamut of... Um, all different kinds of barriers from different angles. Yeah, it's very complex. It really is. It's there, like you said earlier. There's no easy button to push to to do this, but but uh, housing does end homelessness. It's, that's pretty simple, safe right. to say. But uh, getting people into housing is just another whole another whole problem and issues and barriers. We've been doing rapid housing at the Tulsa Day Center, which is a federally funded program, and we do have some private dollars that that help that uh, for gosh, probably eight nine years now. Uh, and we're housing, we, and because of COVID, there was some kind of some silver lining money that came through that we were able to, to experiment and to do some things we've always wanted to do with more staffing and, and to be able to have dollars to house people. But, uh, we, uh, and we, we've housed people more than we had the last three years, right? Two years, mm-hmm. three years. We've, yep. we've, we've, we've rehoused around 3000 individuals, uh, households, uh, mm-hmm. within the last two years. And, uh, Two and a half years, I can't remember. Yeah, two and a half. Two and a half since years March two, since March 2020, and uh, through rapid housing, uh, the Tulsa Day Center. I got to brag, we we uh, rehouse about a thousand of those uh, through our rapid housing program. We know it works because we just found out a couple weeks ago that our program has a 92 percent retention rate of those we housed in 2021, meaning nine out of the ten households we housed are still there. Yeah, and Becky may have said something earlier. We may have said it in another conversation, but. A lot of people coming into homelessness is a first-time event for them. Yeah. And so turning those first-time event people around quickest, which is rapid housing, they're going to be more stable going in, more right. than likely. They're going to be back, back being rehoused and, uh, as well. So, uh, but, but housing is the issue, but, but, but we, we're seeing now uh, people being, we're seeing people out of, out of state buying apartment complexes. Yeah. Uh, I want to say there was 45 to 50 just in the last year or so, uh, starting to see some soft evictions take place, meaning they're coming in not renewing, right? Vouch- not renewing leases with people with vouchers, right. you know, booting them out pretty much, and then raising their rent. 
Yeah, it's it was forty eight since February. Oh, 48, okay. Complexes, not apartments. So oh, yeah, we lost. complexes. Yeah. And in one case in May, an out of state investor from New York bought fifteen apartment complexes in Tulsa in one day, and the next day gave everyone notice that they would not renew any voucher holders leases. Um, and so that's a, that's a crisis we haven't even begun to feel yet, but we know is coming. So we're losing um, people accepting subsidy as yeah. well. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what do we attest that to um, in, in terms of people from out of state buying? We just have local folks wanting to get out of that industry that much or who knows? Yeah. I mean, these are investors and they can yeah. offer money um, at a time where being a landlord might not seem as attractive because they just went through sort of the um, chaos of the pandemic. Um, and these are people that will literally, I mean, this is a business model and they'll look and see where does dirt look cheap? Where right. are tenant protections mm-hmm. low? And yeah. where can I find and fee my bottom line way up? And mm-hmm. they'll come in and offer these folks, you know, a, a nice um, investment. And um, for them, they can then start to uh, make this more profitable because, you know, it's $100 every time I send you an email or it's $50 every day that your rent is late. Um, yeah. And that adds up. Yeah. And when you have a 97% occupancy rate, it's a rich market for that. Right. I don't have to take a voucher because I've got a waiting list a mile long. Right. Right. Wow. Uh, So, you know, uh, some of the other discussion around this, you often get people, you know, commenting, um, you know, who may or may not be commenting from a position of true understanding Mm -hmm. about how complex the issues are. Uh, But a lot of the things that come up with housing um, that you hear kind of rapid fire, what about, you know, tent cities? What about, Mm -hmm. could we, you know, get some land and and throw out, uh, you know, some uh, mobile homes, Mm -hmm. you know, on the land? Uh, There was some discussion recently about, um, you know, a a lot of land uh, in in West Tulsa Mm -hmm. that could be available, but it doesn't have any sewage to it. And Mm -hmm. that's a $75 million, Mm -hmm. you know, price tag on that. Plus, if you started tomorrow, you wouldn't be done for probably two years, Mm -hmm. you know, before it was livable. Um, So is there any, do you see any, uh, this story has happened in other cities Mm -hmm. where, You've had kind of either tiny homes oh, or mm-hmm. that kind of thing done, often through churches, mm-hmm. often through the faith communities. Um, it is what are the barriers to that here in in Tulsa? Zoning, which is the barrier for any of these solutions, probably one of the biggest barriers. Um, those can be really expensive. You talked about the infrastructure. And so uh, things like tiny homes or camping grounds can be short-term solutions. It's hard to make them sustainable economically. Mm-hmm. It's hard to bring the infrastructure you need in terms of water and sewer and those sorts of things. Um, at that point, you might as well build apartments because then you have economies of scale. Um, and I think you know, the NIMBYism, right? Mm-hmm. So right. everybody wants right. to not see encampments, but when we offer solutions from housing to tiny homes or what have you, it's, well, that's a great idea, but it doesn't belong in but this not in my not backyard, not, not mm-hmm. my backyard. NIMBY, mm-hmm. right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, my new slogan is um, apartments or encampments, you get one of them, right? right. And so <laughs> we need to just accept that that's going to need to be in every part of our city. And I hope that as a city, we could come together and do the apartment version. Right, yeah. We we built Hudson Villas, the Tulsa Day Center, mm-hmm. about nine, ten years ago at 11th and Hudson. And uh, even back then, uh, it, it, the neighborhood was just really against us uh, moving there. But once we got established, 
we're part of the neighborhood now. We're just part of it. And we have, it's a 60 apartments. It's a mixed model mm-hmm. we have there. And uh, we have uh, people with vouchers. We have market rate units. We have a permanent supportive housing program there as well. But, but NIMBYism is the big, is the big deal. You can talk about, uh, we can talk about pre COVID, the shelters were overburdened. Okay. You, you can now, during COVID, we had to push people out. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's the only thing we had to do. The city said, we'll leave the campsites alone. That's, and I think that's why you see a, a big increase, not only in, in our community, but nationwide, a 40% increase of unsheltered right. uh, folks. So mindset change sometimes is just hard to, to get people mm-hmm. to get back in. But but even if we could bring everybody back in like we wanted to in the shelter, we, still, we don't have enough space for that. You talk about trying to build an apartment complex in the neighborhood, you ought to try to talk about building a shelter. <laughs> that this is going to be a homeless shelter in your neighborhood. That's I would rather much rather have apartments and, and homes where we can, we can do that. Housing, rapidly housing really work. It does work. And yeah. the housing first works for 90, 92% of the people. It does. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means we try to do everything. No matter what the barrier is, we'll get them into housing and then we'll, we'll bring supports around them. And that's, and that's the big thing. I think you talked about earlier about, what the faith community could do. Uh, I believe, I believe I've always kind of had an idea. You know, we have a church on about every corner in this city about what it would be like if, uh, we get someone housed and, and try to build a support around them for their faith community. Mm-hmm. If they choose to do that, you know, we don't want to force anything on them, of course, sure. but if there's an option for them to, to build community and to reintegrate back into, uh, into, uh, into life as a, you know, as a citizen, uh, but it's it's a like as we said earlier, it's a complex issue. But we there there's a definite need to to look at what we can do immediately for housing, mm-hmm. uh, what that may look like, and and the two years down the road planning as well. Mac, you talked about the the you know the pandemic and um, you know the issues around that. I think uh, so. I'm, I'm curious how each of you see uh, the pandemic. In what ways did it help and what ways did it exacerbate the problem? Because I imagine like with everybody, uh, we found we were finding at least long term that it did a little bit of both. Like it changed some things for the better and then also really exposed. I mean, the influx of federal funds has been exceptional and has allowed us because the funds also sort of loosened some of the standard requirements for us to pilot different things that have been successful. Um, What's interesting is in January of 2020, we, at the end of a years-long strategic plan process, voted as a community to reorganize the Away Home for Tulsa, which is our continuum Mm -hmm. of care leadership structure, governance structure. That's when Housing Solutions was born as the new lead agency to be laser-focused on housing and homelessness. And we embarked on a five-year strategic plan. And I I went in thinking, you know, this kind of systems change and getting this disparate of a group to align – and collaborate. That's like a 10 year. <laughs> we're done. I mean, yeah. not, we're not yeah. done, but the, the coordination and the collaboration happened so quickly because the quickest way to bond is through a crisis, you right? We bet. have a big trauma bond now with That's all right. of us. Yeah. And so I liken it to, we, you know, we had essentially an ocean liner that we had to turn around that we thought that was going to take years. We did it in two and now we have no port to bring it into because we don't have the resources for this collaboration to be as effective as it could be in terms right. of housing. And so I think that's what's been really interesting and something I never would have predicted is it sped up the collaboration and the efficiency of this system. Mm-hmm. And our city's not ready for how effective we could be almost. I totally agree with Becky on that. This Our continuum is more unified than it ever has been. 
there's virtually no, no silos, meaning not, you know what I'm saying? There's, there really isn't. And my 23 years working at the day center, I've just never seen it so unified and laser focused. We're meeting. We, uh, all the time about how we can do things differently, better. And, uh, we're working together. If someone needs something, we, it, it's just amazing what we're doing as a, as a continuum. We just lack the leadership of moving forward mm. next on what we need to do as a city with that, in my opinion. Uh, you can see what they're doing in Houston, but you can see what we're doing here. As I said earlier, we're housing so many people, uh, but we just don't have a plan on what, what's going to happen the next three or four or five years as far as the housing situation is concerned. So, but uh, what that's that's work that I agree with totally with Becky. We had to do something in a crisis, and we and we came together with that. Right. Um, another, to tell you the truth, I still haven't seen any data yet about folks experiencing homelessness and the percentage of them having COVID. It, it's it, they were they were outside mainly, so there wasn't a whole lot of folks that were sick that were experiencing homelessness, which is interesting. We had we had some, and we had we had a, a way of doing that through city lights and a hotel for those that were positive COVID right. or experiencing homelessness, but uh, which was a great collaboration as well. That was amazing how we did that, um, how we were able to take care of sick people uh, that were homeless uh, experiencing that. So uh, that worked well. What didn't work well? I mean, I'm I think... Just, I'm just trying to think. I yeah. can't remember. <laughs> I, I think what I'm struggling with still is my hope at the start of this is that going through something so life-changing as the pandemic would bring out a lot of empathy. I think we all experienced crises, whether it was health or economic or what have you, that maybe we wouldn't have faced otherwise. And I thought, wow, maybe proximity to the bottom falling out will expand people's perception of how somebody ends up in a situation like unsheltered homelessness. I don't know that that's been the case. I think people are exhausted. Mm -hmm. I think we're all sort of retreating to our corners politically, ideologically, just as a society. We sure are. And so we're seeing increased... um, um, frustration from the mm-hmm. public about things like unsheltered yeah. homelessness. Um, and that's been, I think, one of the negative byproducts of the pandemic that I wouldn't have expected um, is that I think we're all kind of retreating to our corners a little bit as a community. So you see that, I assume, in the controversy over the city's um, uh, potential uh, new law, yeah, you know, to be put in place, yeah, right? Ordinance. So the ordinance um, around homelessness, and you know, contending with uh, what is a real struggle. So how do you how do you contend with mm-hmm. um, both uh, the the real need of people who are living on the streets mm-hmm. and uh, the the need of business owners to you know not have their or not at least perceive their business being uh, interfered with uh, mm-hmm. in some ways. And so the, the, the ordinance that came down was uh, perceived by some to be fairly heavy handed and perhaps would exacerbate the problem, not really uh, address it. Uh, but it's a pretty clear indicator of what you are talking about, mm-hmm. which is frustration, you know, we just want to end this. There's this sort of surge to let's return to normal when the reality is that one of the things the pandemic did across the board, whether we're talking about this issue or any other, is um, is change that normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is really no returning. Right. Uh, we have been forever changed in yes. in lots of ways, and so how do we how do we move into that new? space. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about leadership and, and how, you know, what are some things that you think would help, um, to let us 
take those next steps or to to at least create a port to mm-hmm. put that ship in, right? I'd love to see the conversion of existing structures very quickly into housing opportunities, even if they're transitional. Um, and so we've talked about this a lot, but, you know, we have so many board and boarded up commercial structures, vacant hotels, motels that could be converted into efficiency apartments. I'd like to see something like that happen really quickly. Um, and that's just honestly a lot of those some of those would require zoning, some wouldn't. I think we could identify the ones that wouldn't require rezoning, and that just takes political will and aligning the funding the right way. And I think the, I totally agree with Becky on that. And I think also uh, the what the ordinance did, uh, the proposed ordinance, I think gave us opportunity to, to give options, another op, another way of dealing with folks downtown or in businesses that there might be more of a mental health response. So we're looking into that as well. Uh, which is very positive on how we can treat folks that are uh, experiencing homelessness and maybe mental illness uh, or addiction or both or whatever and trying to respond, maybe a little more kinder response mm-hmm. uh, and outreach. We, we have an amazing out. We have more outreach. And that's another positive about mm-hmm. what happened with the with the pandemic is we have more outreach now than we ever have in Tulsa. Yeah. Uh, with the Mental Health Association, uh, Housing Solutions, their outreach team. John 316 still does outreach too. So uh, working together on on responding mm-hmm. uh, to, to communities. And we, we, we need to do that better. We, mm-hmm. we definitely need to do that. And I think we're getting, yeah. we're getting some, maybe some resources to be able to, to see that happen more. Well, and I think there's sometimes a misperception about what outreach is there to do. Outreach is not there to move people. I mean, we can move people to a more appropriate location, but we're not there to disappear folks. We're there to connect them to housing, which doesn't happen overnight. Um, You're there to build a relationship in lots of ways, right? Absolutely. So it begins with that. So there's definitely a gap in that crisis mental health response. And when we pull back and really look at what business owners are responding to, a lot of times it's somebody who is in crisis that can be disruptive to them or maybe even destructive. Um, but if we get them access to crisis care or even medication in the field, there's some mm-hmm. teams that do that in other communities. That would do a lot to kind of dissipate the immediate crisis and allow us then to come in and start to connect them with broader services. Whereas jail and fines don't connect them to that long-term solution. It brings another barrier. gives them another barrier. Yeah. You bet it does. If they do get, if right. they do get right, they it, it, you got another barrier to overcome. And yeah. we see that all the time. The day center on our rapid housing program, it's 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 something either a you know a, it could be a justice related, it could be related to any past eviction that we have to deal with, uh, lost IDs, birth certificates, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of dilemmas that can happen for people getting getting resources back to get rehoused. Yeah. So. Well, I can tell you anecdotally, you know, uh, having served as pastor here, I'm getting ready to start my ninth year, um, having come from Oklahoma City and come here. Um, uh, we are here at 31st and South Harvard, mm-hmm. you know, so Midtown, uh, depending on who you ask, who you <laughs> ask, right? Midtown goes all the way down to, right. right. Uh, but, uh, and, and when I first got here, we, we really have not had not much of an issue uh, in terms of uh, encountering folks dealing with homelessness on the property and so on and so forth. That has gone up exponentially, mm-hmm. uh, so much so that um, we've really shifted from taking our resources and taking it, and we still do take things to the day center, um, uh, and and stocking things there, but also keeping some of that here uh, because we encounter people at our door who are in that kind of need. And we've really geared towards 
you know, like really top items. So we've got, we keep a lot of socks and underwear on hand. We keep a lot of, you know, uh, seasonal kinds of weather related stuff and toiletries and, you know, some immediate food items and, and lots of water, uh, keep that in hand. But, uh, we've also, you know, most of those folks are, at least from my unprofessional assessment, clearly dealing with some mental health issues, clearly dealing with some substance abuse issues. Um, how big a factor do you think that is in the overall, uh, particularly from the, from the comments of the people who I talk to who themselves are living on the street, um, uh, that drugs and particularly meth right now is just such a huge part of the life that they are surrounded in? I mean, uh, can mental health and can substance abuse disorder be the causes of homelessness? Absolutely. So can a lot of other things like you listed. They're also direct byproducts of the trauma of being homeless. Um, There's a lot of self-medicating that can happen because of that. But I also think we have to pull back. Homelessness is what happens when every single system has failed an individual, right? When that has been, they just can't work through them and that we think about why and we think about our state we have some of the highest aces scores in the country um so there's indication oh yeah Yeah. incredibly high we're at the center of the opioid crisis and so i think it would be naive to um assume that those things have no correlation with folks you know kind of falling out of the bottom when it happens but um we certainly see the effects of homelessness too on folks that maybe when they entered into homelessness didn't have signs of substance abuse disorder or mental health, um, but then those things showed up later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you think think of it in reverse, there's a lot of people that are mentally ill and may have addiction issues that are housed. Yeah, okay. your neighbors, Absolutely. my neighbors, right? That uh, around our neighborhood that, that deal with you this, you know, you talk, you talk about domestic violence being a big issue. That that's, those folks are still housed somewhere, right. depending on the situation. So, uh, just just using that only as a as a, right. as a reason is kind of hard because there's a lot of folks that are home that are housed, like I said, that uh, deal with those issues too. Never been homeless before. That's right. They may and, deal and with and a really couple people, of those there's issues. There's a lot of people in poverty. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in poverty that are housed. You bet. Yeah. They're not homeless. That's right. You know? It's one of the reasons, too, we're so focused on housing and have kind of adopted housing first as a continuum philosophy is um, those things are really hard to resolve if you don't have your basic needs met. Absolutely. Yeah. The the people that I, again, that I've built Mm -hmm. relationships with uh, who are here, uh, it it is the insurmountable thing to them. I mean, they Mm -hmm. just cannot. There's no way. Right. That you can really live on the street and be expected to, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the sentiment get it just get a job right which 22 percent of them did right well yeah you (laughs) bet you bet i mean that's those are the really fortuitous i mean the people Mm -hmm. who have some kind of extra drive Mm -hmm. because the amount of hurdles that you have to we don't think about you know being somebody who's been housed all my life Mm -hmm. you know i don't think about the things that you have to have in place Mm -hmm. in order to just go to the go to work yeah and and once the 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 support's not there Right. You know, there's not that someone behind, you know, supporting. Right. Uh, that's why it's so important. We, we do housing stabilization. A lot of organizations does in ours. Once we get people, some of our people rehoused, we we follow them up with case management mm-hmm. and, and making relationships with the landlord and doctors and whoever else to to help facilitate uh, success in housing Yeah, uh, for they not to relapse back into it. So that's a big piece of it, too, is, yeah. is stabilizing folks that have been chronic or 
maybe a one-time event, just moving in. But uh, uh, like I, like you said in the beginning of all this, uh, there's no easy answer. There sure there isn't. There really isn't, and, and it's hard work. And, it, and what we're proposing on the housing and, and, and the plan and what needs to take place, it, it takes time and effort. It's going to take. It's not going to be an overnight solution. Uh, but to let people know, Becky and my organization and, and 25 others that's in the continuum, we are dedicated working together, using every dollar we can we can receive and, and try to to uh, build a better system uh, to uh, to make this rare brief and hopefully non reoccurring for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Well, the the uh, when you talk about changing systems and the need to change systems, I think that there's um, you know, one of the things that the pandemic really exposed for us is the way that our economic models work and don't work. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think you're seeing everything from quiet quitting to, you know, uh, uh, a really uh, low unemployment, uh, but yet lots of jobs open and all that kind of stuff uh, has a that comes from that reaction. Um, to a couple of years in which things shut down and people kind of reevaluated mm -hmm. what they wanted to do. Um, there's there's room in this conversation, I think, for us to to think about. Um, we often would love to put things into binaries. Mm -hmm. And so to think of um, having economic conversations that are just capitalism on one side and, you know, for lack of a better term, socialism on the other side. And so where is a lot of middle ground there mm -hmm. where we can talk about um, how it is that we shape uh, a, an economic system that works mm -hmm. for more people mm -hmm. uh, that allows that kind of uh, th that allows that particularly getting from where we are to that kind of idyllic environment would take a lot of support and effort and intention mm -hmm. you know to, you'd have to You'd have to um, create those systems artificially for a while before mm -hmm. they could take off on their own. Yeah. Um, so, in, in your uh, experience, you know, what does that kind of look like here in Tulsa? Like, what what would be a thing that we would have to really systemically change, um, economic or otherwise, um, to get us kind of down that road? Paying living wage. It still takes, uh, if someone, you said earlier, like seven, someone with a, with minimum wage would have to work 72 hours a week in order to just rent a small apartment. A studio. A studio apartment. Yeah. So pay equity is a, is a and we looked at this in our own, in our own organization, uh, some of our front line, and we were able to uh, assess that and say, you know, we're not, we need to, we have people working for us that are struggling. Mm. And so we're, we try to wait to, to, to raise their pay so they'll have a living wage. That's yeah. that's a big part of it, yeah. big time, uh, being able to do that. Yeah. I think flexibility, too. I think for so long, subsidy and, and federal funding has looked like this monolith. And mm -hmm. um, I think there's a mis, mis or misconception that it, once you're on it, you're on it forever. Yeah. Um, and what we've seen during the pandemic is, again, the flexibility around some of these funds. So instead of somebody having to wait seven years to get on a voucher waiting list to have their rent subsidized every month, we were able to pull into a pot and say, what if we could help you pay your arrears, your deposit and your first couple months, which mm -hmm. is really what rapid rehousing yeah. does. Mm -hmm. um, or the ERAP program, which I think for years to come will actually be one of the most impactful programs that came out of the pandemic. We had families that would have been on the street, but were able to go get two or three 
months of rent paid so that things could calm down and they could not worry about whether they're going to be kicked out, but worry about filing for unemployment or getting a job or what have you. And it made a huge difference. Um, and so I think flexibility around some of these funds to just bridge that gap. So mm -hmm. bringing wages up certainly mm -hmm. and understanding that sometimes somebody just needs a little bit right. um, to stabilize and that that should be easier to get. Yeah. You shouldn't have to be on a waiting list forever right. or fill out 50 applications. Um, could some people take advantage of it? Yeah, but the vast majority of people, you know, I'd rather 10% take advantage and 90% um, have what they need to survive. And so I think hopefully that's going to be something that we can shift. I think we've already seen things like the city's affordable housing trust fund mm. add some of that flexibility, whereas before we really just had CDBG, ESD, ESG and home dollars, which are incredibly complex federal funds, half the um, nonprofits in the city won't even touch them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so hopefully we're, we're kind of um, getting a little bit uh, more progressive, not politically, but just sure. in our thinking about how we, you know, use funding to help support people that are right on the edge. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, anytime <clears throat> the folks that we rapidly house, it's usually a one-time event. Yeah. Few thousand dollars, they're stable. Yep. They're back yep. in the housing. Yep. They're working, and then they can do their and thing. They're, and they're on right. their own. That's yeah. the ninety-two percent retention I'm talking about. Eighty-eight percent, I think, citywide. But just think about that. It was a one, mostly a one-time touch. Yeah, maybe a few months rent, back and forward, and they're stable. And we're back to that previous conversation, which is you can have people who are who are housed, yeah. who have mental health issues, who have substance abuse issues, who have domestic violence, who have job issues, who have all of those. And they, they could have two, three, four of those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's that fifth thing. Mm -hmm. right? It's actually they, that their tire was flat. They couldn't get to work that exactly. day. Right? Like, and then that. they get yeah. fired. And then that, right. Mm -hmm. the, the adage that we are lots of us a, a paycheck away from, you know, that kind of we, reality. We haven't discussed so. health. You know, physical no, health. no, no, no. The, yeah. I think the difference of Medicaid is making a difference mm -hmm. for, for folks and right. you know, that shift as well. People having access to health care. Right. Well, that's been, I mean, I think of, we won't say her name, but a longtime <laughs> resident of the Tulsa Day Center who, <laughs> yeah. who is now, I mean, she's what, in her 80s? In maybe? her 80s, yes. Just got into a nursing home because of what Medicaid expansion could oh. do for her. Right. You know, and, and she's. She's mean, but she deserves <laughs> to have a, a nice place yeah. to grow old She's in and, and her basic yeah. needs met, yeah. right? Like, in, Well, and who knows? Maybe that'll make her a little less mean. I mean maybe not, though. Maybe, it's okay maybe to be not. mean. You still yeah. deserve yeah. a house. I mean, so. at 80? That's right. Yeah, that, yeah absolutely. It's, it's, it's amazing what uh, just access to some medical sure. can, can do for people. Mm -hmm. Sure. And we see that, you know, our clinic is open. You know, that's we've become kind of, a, we've always been kind of a bridge uh, to people get, you know, primary care as well, but Medicaid has really helped us. We're not a Medicaid clinic, but we're able to to refer and to get people hopefully yeah, stabilized medically better, as yeah, well. Sorry. Sure. And uh, that's one of my next thing is it's it's not just housing stabilization, but it's health stabilization as well. Once mm -hmm. people get housed, uh, you can you're you're much healthier in your house. You know, yeah, in your you own bet. place. Or that's all there is to it. But okay. how you can maintain that uh, as as well. I remember when we first opened up Hudson Villas. Uh, years ago, that we had a person that uh, we had a couple actually in in, in Hudson Villas, and the and the and the wife would uh, uh, would get sick at the, in the shelter. They would spend all their their resources. They had disability, but doing all that. Once we got them housed, and she had a relapse and had to go. It's a it was a medical condition. Went to the hospital, but this time 
she was discharged home. Right. <laughs> and mm-hmm. not to the streets or to a shelter, right. but home. And she thrived. Much better process. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was you amazing bet. the difference yeah. housing makes yeah. for, for health-related issues as well. So, anyhow, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just great seeing the successes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we sure talk a lot is. about the folks that are out in the streets all the time. And believe me, you, I love Becky the way she says this. We, I've been in a neighborhood meeting with her in my neighborhood. Uh, people kept on saying, well, what do you do? You just have to give You don't give up on people. You continue to reach, to reach out, build relationships. And we've seen miracles happen of people been on the streets for years, decided yep. it clicks. Something happened. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm, I'm good to go. I'm in housing. Yeah. It's stable. The day somebody can convince me of an alternative is the day I'll probably retire from this work. But I just, we don't have a choice. We don't get to throw human beings out like no, trash. That's right. And so until there's a, a reasonable alternative, we just have to keep doing the work. Right. And we have to keep coming back. I don't care if it's the 15th time we rehouse them, we're going to do 16. No, because right. we owe it to our neighbors. So. Yeah. No. And you, and you get away from being so incredibly invested in a single encounter, right? Mm-hmm. So understand that if you are building a relationship, that that one might not go very well. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens no. the next time yep. uh, that, that comes around. So back to the promised question, which Uh-oh. is how can, uh, you know, how can congregations of all sizes kind of help with this situation? Obviously, I know, Mac, there's... Um, there are things that the day center needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always that option of going to the day center's website. You guys yes. do a, a great job of listing your, your current needs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would say to, uh, to congregations, uh, that's a great opportunity to do some work, uh, tell a story in your own uh, space. And um, we do Socktober every year, yeah. you know, and try to try to build some momentum around that and tell the story of why it is that we're gathering socks. You know, there, here's the reason why we would gather socks and, and, uh, you know, make kind of a big deal about that. Do that even with our, with our kids and, uh, um, have that be an opportunity. But, uh, what other, what other things could congregations do? Well, I think, you know, that we are basic need shelter. We're always in need of the, we have the clothing room there that's open seven days a week for people to come in and access our clothing, the, sh- the full shower facilities, the toiletries and all that is there, the meals. For years, the day center has relied on the faith community and other organizations to come and provide the evening meal yeah. for our guests at yeah. the day center at night. And we don't have a working kitchen there, so we depend on that. We've that's done right. it for many, many years and continue to do that. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting during the pandemic, we congregations didn't do that but they responded financially yeah we were able they, they were we gave them kind of an estimate of what it would cost to yeah. cater something in and they would give us the resources and that helped the catering companies in tulsa during that time you bet for sure, you bet uh, to come in and feed 100 people you know uh, uh, and so i'll that, tell you mac we shifted over yeah. during that time but all of my people were ready as soon as I gave the go to come back and feed we feed twice a twice a twice month, a month. Yeah, and sure they were ready because the the experience that they get, the yeah. relationships that they build, and that experience was what they wanted back. Uh, the given money was nice, and they were nice that caterers, sure. you know, could. And we cer- certainly wanted people but we to be fed. That. That's a way, but to it's a whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's not just a meal. Yeah, right? It's an yeah. opportunity to minister, really. You bet. What we're what what we should be doing uh, as well. So, and, and you know, I just you know, challenge churches would be glad to come and speak. What we do at the day center, Sunday school classes, whatever, we'd be glad to share what we're up to, what, what our needs are as well. But uh, uh, I challenge some churches, if, if they can do so, maybe become a part of their uh, uh, mission strategy mm-hmm. and locally. 
yeah. uh, in, in, in funding and helping. But uh, volunteer, you can come and volunteer at the, in our clothing room, volunteer services. We're looking at doing some different things, a little, a little bit more opening up. We're, op- we're wide open again since the pandemic. So we're, we're open for uh, people to come down to perhaps just uh, do an art class if they want to do that right. or, or reach out or just come build a relationship. We're, we're willing to do whatever we can. Our volunteer coordinator can take that information and, and get you to work. Great. That's what you want to do. Great. Becky? Oh, I, I mean, I think proximity is the most powerful teacher. So I would say challenge your assumptions and mm-hmm. come and work with the day center, work, volunteer at Iron Gate, go out with city lights under yeah. the bridge right. um, and get to know this population because it will change your life. Um, open your doors during extreme weather events, even yeah. if it's to four or five people, if you have the space to do so. Um because we are challenged with our shelters and we don't want anybody to die on the street of exposure. Um, And then I think, you know, advocate, you have, you know, we have small and large congregations, but you have a wide reach. Mm -hmm. You're a trusted authority. And obviously you have to use that with precision, but if congregations started showing up at planning meetings and saying, yeah, we do want this housing in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. If they started reaching out to elected officials and saying, why aren't we doing more to have more housing? If we started to advocate together as a unit to um, transform our community's ability to have more affordable housing, Mm -hmm. that's the high level thing that's actually going to change this. Um, And so I think, when we have folks that are showing up to say not in my neighborhood or using horrific terminology to talk about people who are experiencing homelessness, I think we have to go back to, you know, whatever our beliefs are and think, is that in line with this? Sure. Or should we Perfect. be showing up to try to advocate for our neighbors, as I think almost any religious doctrine would call us to do? See, Becky, there's our theological. We, we just t- took it right back to the <laughs> theological driver of all this. That's perfect. I mean, it's a, it really is a chance. Uh, this, is, this is an issue that really rises that sense of what do we think it means to be human? What do we think it means to be created in God's image? And if, if all of us are created in God's image, then that uh, means we have to live in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a, that's a good theological uh, structure uh, that that uh, I think is approachable for lots of folks if if they will take that provocative step, you know, mm-hmm. to to try to consider what the implications of that mm-hmm. of that theology are. So, um, gosh, uh, it, we have likely only scratched the surface <laughs> of what is a, a very complex issue. But I uh, appreciate your time uh, and coming and and giving some honest answers about. Uh, things that are working and things that aren't working and where we can hopefully hopefully go um, in, in the days and weeks and years to come. Um, we hope uh, that that sense of continuity that you all feel as the people kind of in the trenches working on this, that those of us who are in that next concentric circle out uh, can can help join in and, and that you'll all feel that, uh, that solidarity from us too. So we appreciate that. Thanks again for being here. Thanks um, for having us. Intersections is recorded throughout the city of Tulsa, an estate which was once home to the Apache, Arapaho, Caddo, Comanche, Kiowa, Osage, and Wichita tribes. Tulsa now sits on the boundaries of the Muscogee, Cherokee, and Osage nations. Thank you for joining us for Intersections, a production of the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. Intersections is produced and edited by Ramp 9 Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts.